Well, our sermon passage today comes from the book of Romans. And in a series of sermons from the same book, we would begin to have a clear understanding of the author's main point, his reason or purpose for writing a particular, to a particular individual or group of people. But since this message today is not the start of a sermon series, I think it's important and will be helpful to us to take a few moments to discuss why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. This God-inspired letter is an inexhaustible treasure of the doctrines of the faith. So let me whet your appetite a little bit with some quotes from various theologians about the importance of this letter to the Romans. Martin Luther said this, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much, for the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Now how's that for a plug for scripture memorization? Martin Luther's given the challenge of, let's memorize Romans. Anybody up to that? John Calvin said this, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. J.I. Packer said, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there's no telling what may happen. Those are some pretty powerful statements about the rich doctrinal content of this letter. I do pray that by God's grace we will taste and savor this text today as food for our souls. So as we begin, let's lay out a few details of the context of the letter. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul. As stated in Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And it's most likely that Paul wrote this while he was in Corinth, near the end of his third missionary journey. He addressed the letter to the Christians in Rome, as stated in, in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The church in Rome at this time, which was about the year A.D. 57, would likely consist of Gentile and Jewish Christians, which are evidenced by references to Gentiles in chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 11, verse 13, and also references to the Jewish Christians in chapter 16. So what is the main theological theme of Romans? What was Paul's primary purpose for writing this letter? Well, in his insightful commentary on Romans, Andrew Nacelli states that the main purpose is to communicate that the gospel reveals how God righteously justifies unrighteous individuals at this stage in redemptive history. 
That's a pretty weighty statement. Let me say it one more time. The purpose is to communicate that the gospel reveals how God righteously justifies unrighteous individuals at this stage in redemptive history. Now, I know it would be helpful if we had that statement written out and you could look at it and think on it a little more, but let's simplify it a bit. Let's think of it this way. God is holy and righteous. All of humankind are born sinners, making us unrighteous. So this separates us from fellowship with God, and it puts us under the justified wrath of God. So the gospel, good news, declares that God has provided the way for us to be made righteous. And it's not by keeping the law, but rather by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. A succinct way to define the gospel is this. Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners. And God will save you if you turn and trust Jesus. It is this gospel that reveals how we are made righteous before our righteous God. So Paul wrote with this burden to explain to the Christians at Rome how faith in Jesus Christ alone by God's grace alone, makes unrighteous sinners righteous. So Nicelli traces this theme of God's righteousness through the letter, and he offers this outline to us. First, in chapters 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, it's the universal need for God's righteousness. And then in chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, it's the means of obtaining God's righteousness. It's faith alone in Jesus is how God will declare us righteous. And then in chapters 5 through 8, it's the benefits of obtaining God's righteousness. And then chapters 9 through 11, it's the vindication of God's righteousness. God chooses whom he will make righteous. Chapters 12 through 15 are living in light of God's righteousness. It's the marks of true Christian living. And then chapter 16 are the closing remarks of the letter. Well, our text today is Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. And so according to that outline, our focal passage is going to reveal one of the benefits of obtaining God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So please turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Romans 6. We'll read our text and dive into the details of how we obtain God's righteousness and the incredible benefits of being in right standing before God. If you do not have a Bible with you today, uh, you can use one of the Bibles in the chair back in front of you, and you'll find Romans 6 on page 549. Starting in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God 
that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I have four points to guide our understanding of this marvelous text of God's Word. Point number one, a Christian must guard against the danger of presuming upon God's grace. A Christian must guard against the danger of presuming upon God's grace. That's verses 15 and 16. Point two is Christians are delivered by God's power to become slaves of righteousness. Christians are delivered by God's power to become slaves of righteousness. That's verses 17 and 18. Thirdly, Christians must be devoted slaves of righteousness. Christians must be devoted slaves of righteousness. Verse 19. And point number four, the fruit produced from obedience to the two slave masters. The fruit produced from obedience to the two slave masters. That's verses 20 through 23. Well, verse 15 begins with a question. What then? So it's a question that's pointing back to a conclusion made in verse 14, which reads, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The concluding statement in verse 14 is the basis for Paul asking in verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And then he follows that question with an emphatic, By no means. We might say, absolutely not. Absolutely no way. It's crazy. Well, he's asking that. His question is anticipating an objection. It's an objection that the Jewish Christians would likely have concerning the absence of the law. See, in their minds, if there's no law present, then there's nothing to restrain sin. But the law was given to define the seriousness of sin. Earlier in the letter, <clears throat> starting back in chapter 3, 21 through chapter 4, Paul presented the case that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, not by seeking to keep the law. And then he makes the concluding statement in 5.1. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. There's that defining of the seriousness of sin. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the issue for us is that we're all born sinners or lawbreakers. We do not and cannot keep the law of God. If we could keep the law of God, we would be righteous before God. But we can't. We'll see why as we look here at verse 16. So verse 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So he raises another question. Do you not know? It's like he's saying, do you not realize this question implies that there are facts that they should already know. He said, if you, do you not realize that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? And so what he's doing here is he's introducing the subject of slavery because it's something they would be very familiar with. See, in Roman culture, slavery was quite common. And these Roman Christians would understand what he means about presenting yourself before a slave master. It was common that people would sometimes find themselves in financial burdens that made them choose to become a slave as a means of paying that debt. So they would present themselves before their master in obedience. For a slave, there was no choice concerning obedience. You will obey. It's either willingly or by force, but you will obey whatever that master desires you to do. That's the imagery that Paul is bringing to them because it's factual and it's common to them. And then he declares in the rest of the sentence that all people are slaves in the spiritual sense. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. This is a profound statement. It may be a little bit shocking to you. Paul is saying that every human being is a slave. No human being is ever free to do as he or she desires. Have you ever really considered that there's no such thing as being totally autonomous, meaning answering to no one. No one is ever free in the sense of never having a master. You are either a slave of sin or a slave of obedience. Well, you may be thinking, wait a minute, I thought what Jeff read earlier from John chapter 8 said that if the Son sets you free... You are free indeed. Are these passages in contradiction? No, not at all. Jesus and Paul are saying the exact same thing. The critical distinction in both texts is not, are you free from sin, as in 
as in being sinless, but rather that you are freed from sin. In Christ Jesus, you are liberated from the slave master of sin to become a willing, obedient slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go from one master to the other. Now in verse 16, Paul uses the term slave of obedience. Later he's going to say slaves of righteousness in verse 18 and slaves of God in verse 22. But I don't want us to miss the significance of him starting it this way in verse 16. Because a Christian is marked by obedience to the commands of God. All things are fulfilled in Christ. Christ's perfect obedience fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus then serves as an example to us of obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus said this to his disciples on the night of his betrayal in John 15:10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So if you do as Christ did, which is obey the Father's commands, we also abide in his love. Obedience brings the blessing of God's steadfast love. This term, slave of obedience, is also significant to help counter any concepts of a false Christian liberty. The Christian does not gain a freedom to do as one wants. But listen, you gain a freedom to obey God. You gain a freedom to obey God because before you could not. While it's true that God's grace grants us freedom from slavery to sin, it does not grant us freedom to sin. You see the difference? God's grace grants us freedom from slavery to sin, but it does not grant us freedom to sin. To choose to obey sin is to presume upon God's grace. See, the danger for us as Christians is to presume upon that grace in justifying habitual sin. It's taking an extreme and erroneous position of Christian liberty as license to foster sin habits because we're basing it on the truth that because of God's grace toward us, our sins are forgiven. But that's gross error. It's the dangerous sin of presumption. Jansen addressed this in his text from James chapter 4 in last Sunday's sermon. If you missed that sermon, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast. Go back and hear in greater detail the effects of presumptuous sin on our lives. One effect Jansen mentioned is that this presumptuous attitude toward sin can harden our hearts to the conviction of sin. The deeper a man goes in sin the more his heart hardens to sin. This then opens the door for sin to have dominion on our lives. And we just read in Romans 6.14 that sin will not have dominion over you. So how do we guard against this dangerous sin of presuming upon God's grace? What do we do? 
Well, first is recognize or know that this is a category of sin. Know that this exists. And secondly, we should pray as David did in Psalm 19. Jansen referenced this last week. I'll read more of the text, verses 12 through 14. It says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What a great example for us to pray for ourselves. He asked a great question. Who can discern his errors? You see, we may not even realize that we're committing presumptuous sin. They're hidden faults. We're often blind to our own sin. So I urge you to go before the Lord in prayer. And ask for these hidden faults to be revealed through conviction. Thirdly, how can you guard against presumptuous patterns of sin in your life? Ask a trusted and mature brother or sister. Do you see patterns in my life where I presume upon God's grace? Now that takes a lot of humility, doesn't it? You have to be willing to do it. And you have to be willing to hear their answer. And really, brothers and sisters in Christ, as Paul says in Romans 12, we should love one another fervently. This is one of the ways we show love for one another. By bearing one another's sin burdens. Particularly, those that we may have difficulty discerning that are even present in our lives. Well, how does one become a slave to obedience leading to righteousness? Can a slave just choose for themselves their own master? No, the slave never chooses. Only the master can grant the slave his freedom. Which leads us to point number two. Christians are delivered by God's power to become slaves to righteousness. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. What tremendous truth this is. The only way a slave to sin can be set free is by the power of God. How does this happen? Well, look back with me in chapter 6. We didn't read these verses, but the beginning of chapter 6, look at verses 4 through 7. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been given new life. The assurance of pardon read earlier from 2 Corinthians 5.17 just magnifies this truth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because of this new life, we're no longer enslaved to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. And did you notice where that change occurred? You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. It's the heart that becomes obedient. That center of the mind, will, and emotions. The heart is where all desire comes from. R.C. Sproul in his book, Chosen by God, said, We always do what we desire. We always do what we desire. But the problem is, is that we don't desire righteousness. So God has to do a work in our heart to change that desire. And only the power of God can regenerate a heart that was once dead to righteousness. It was alive to sin, but dead to righteousness. Once God regenerates the heart by the Spirit, there is now the ability to obey God because there is now a new desire for righteousness that did not exist before. This is why true conversion must always be by faith in Christ and submission to Him as Lord. Obedience to the commands of God is the fruit of true conversion. Obedience to the commands of God is the fruit of true conversion. Also notice by what means God uses to bring about this transformation. He says, You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. It's the teaching of God's Word, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that causes the heart to become obedient to righteousness. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The true gospel is the standard of teaching to which we're committed to here at CCBC. This is why we pray for every man that stands in this pulpit to teach and preach God's word only and with boldness and clarity because the clear truth of God's word is the only means by which the heart is changed. It's never by clever stories, feel-good sermonettes that soothe the longings of a depraved heart that is in slavery to sin. It makes no sense. It's also why we pray for other churches. Please pray earnestly that every man that preaches the word of God, that stands in the pulpit in, in the River Valley, in our area, and in all places, that they would stand firm to that standard of teaching, the true gospel, and that they would resist that temptation to placate to the sinful desires of unregenerate hearts. We must unashamedly remain true to the gospel, just like Paul said in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, the glorious result of God working through the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of his word, is that we who were once slaves of sin become slaves of righteousness. Look at verse 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You once were in slavery to sin, but now... In Christ, you've been set free to become a slave of righteousness. Friends, our thoughts and our prayer life should be saturated in thankfulness to God for His power and His grace that does what we just read, makes our heart obedient to God to become slaves of righteousness. That attitude of thankfulness produces devotion to living righteously. And that leads us to point number three. Christians must be devoted slaves of righteousness. Read with me in verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Well, that first part of verse 19 is basically a kind of a parenthetical statement by Paul. He's, he's kind of given the reason for why he's using slavery as the analogy. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And as I stated earlier, slavery was something that was very common and known to these Roman Christians, something they could relate to and understand because they see it, they experience it in everyday life. So it's very much the same way that Jesus taught through parables. He used everyday life examples to explain the principles of the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's using slavery to explain how the Christian should now live as the slaves of righteousness. But then he makes this imperative statement in a, you were, once were this, so now do this format. So the, read the rest of verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What Paul's doing here is reminding the Christians of their devotion to their former slave master. Sin. In your former manner of life, this is what you presented yourself to. And we need to key on that word presented. The Greek word there that's translated as presented. It means to dedicate, consecrate, devote. He's saying... You devoted your members, that is your body, as slaves to impurity, which is the very opposite of God who is pure and holy. And you also devoted your members, your body, to lawlessness. That means you spoke, you looked, you listened, you walked into and along with impurity and lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4 defines lawlessness for us. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
Sin is lawlessness. And then he says, And you were so devoted to sin as your master that the lawlessness progressed. You just did more and more of it. You were very obedient to sin as your master. And then he transitions, so now. In other words, it's saying, because you did that, now do this. He wants us as Christians to serve the new master of righteousness with, at the very least, the same devotion we had to sin before our liberation from sin to the Lordship of Christ. Before we devoted ourselves to unrighteousness. Now the exhortation is to devote ourselves to righteousness with the motivation that the work of Christ has brought us from death to life. Again in chapter 6, this time look at verses 12 and 13. We read, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And that devotion to righteousness leads to sanctification. Now sanctification refers to that process of becoming holy. You may have heard it explained this way. Becoming in practice what you already are in Christ. Holy. In essence, the devotion to righteousness leads to living in increasing God-centeredness. The devotion to righteousness leads to living in increasing God-centeredness. It's becoming less focused on the sinful desires of this present world system and having greater desire for the things of God. The true Christian must be a devoted slave of righteousness. So the question is, are you? Are you a devoted slave to righteousness? Are you presenting yourself to that which promotes or enables devotion to obedience to God or that which enslaves you again to sin? We must be careful to hear and heed the warnings of Scripture. Listen to Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. Do you hear that? Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. The Apostle John had a similar warning. 1 John 2. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. While it's true that we have an enemy in Satan that works very hard to conform us to the sinful desires of this world system, it is not Satan himself that causes your sin. 
There's a common phrase we probably have all said. The devil made me do it. But really, that's just a blame-shifting phrase. I actually wish Christians would stop saying that. What we should admit is that we are too casual about putting ourselves in front of the things of this world that entice our own sinful desires. Instead, we should realize that where that temptation originates. James 1.14 tells us, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Be certain of this, though, that Satan is leading. He's managing. He's the CEO of a world system that is designed to entice us, to make us want to obey that system rather than God. He would love nothing more than to see a once-devoted Christian become entangled again with sin. That's why it's so important for us to ask ourselves, what am I presenting myself to? What am I presenting myself to? I'll borrow Paul's phrase from verse 16. Do you not know? Do you not realize that if you present yourself to unrighteous things, you can become obedient to those things instead of the righteousness of God? Yeah, the Christian can become enslaved to patterns of sin because of continually presenting yourself to that which you know you should not. So, Christian, what are you setting before your eyes that you should not? What are you listening to that you should not? Who are you making friends with and spending time with that you should not? Have you had this thought at some point recently? I just can't seem to get past this struggle with sin. And you can insert whatever your particular sin is. I'll mention a quote again that, uh, from Elizabeth Elliot that Blake has shared in a previous sermon and he also sent out by text message in recent weeks listen to this quote sometimes struggling is a nice word for postponed obedience and we're talking about obedience to our new master so from the moment of our justification that moment of regeneration that enables you to hear and receive the truth of God's word when you repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ alone for salvation from God's justified wrath from that moment, God expects and demands your full and continual obedience. Putting it off is only a nice way to say that I still prefer some of those old sinful patterns in my former life of enslavement to sin. And it's dangerous because you can become entangled in it to where you're more devoted to that sin than you are to obeying the righteous commands of God. Hear this urgent plea that Paul gave in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's your reasonable response. 
So how do we progress in our sanctification? Having heard that, how do we progress in our sanctification? That process of becoming continually obedient to the commands of God. To becoming joyful, devoted, slaves of righteousness. Let me give you a few applications. Number one, confess and forsake any patterns of habitual sin. We have to confess and forsake any patterns of habitual sin. Proverbs 28:13 says, "Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." The Christian cannot progress in sanctification when harboring patterns of sinful behavior. Secondly, renew your mind, renew your mind by consistent daily reading studying and meditating on God's Word. How can you know what God has commanded if you don't read and study the very source that reveals it? There's simply no substitute for that. You must. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I encourage you right here, we're at the beginning of a new year, to begin a daily Bible reading plan. I know, you know, we start them and we stop. We get frustrated. Start. Just do it again, okay? Do it again because you've got to be in the Word. And I would encourage you to have one, a plan that has both Old Testament and New Testament passages. As you read those Old Testament passages, ask this question. How is this Old Testament passage fulfilled in Jesus Christ? See the connection. The, the big word for that is biblical theology. It's thinking biblically. It's, th- it's seeing the one storyline that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation, how it's all tied together and it's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I think by asking that question, it will add a dynamic to your reading. You won't get, you won't get bored. You won't get bogged down by some of the things. Think about how is that? fulfilled in Christ whatever you got to do to motivate yourself be in the word consistently daily learning thirdly how can we progress in our sanctification prayer must be a daily priority scripture exhorts us to pray without ceasing prayer is our acknowledgement of dependence on God for the strength to live righteously. We, we can't do it on our own. But the wonderful thing is, that power, that strength, is just prayer away. It's turning to God and saying, God, help me. God, strengthen me. Strengthen me by your Spirit. So prayer is the response to all the temptations we face in daily life. Every day, we've got things bombarding us. Pray. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. It's not a five minutes in the morning and I'm done. It's as you're going. When you sense that, that temptation to not live righteously, not obey, that's the time to call out to God in prayer. Also, as you're studying the Word, ask 
in prayer for the Spirit to open your mind to understand the principles of God's Word. As you begin, pray for your focus to be on that which will lead to righteous living. Psalm 119, verse 37 is a great verse to pray. It says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Fourthly, how, how can we progress in sanctification? Be committed to gathering with your church family. Be committed to gathering with your church family. This is where we receive that standard of teaching that God used first to deliver the good news of the gospel by which you came to faith. But also it's to hear it over and over again. We should never grow tired of hearing the gospel. It's the renewing strength of our faith. Also, I would encourage you to come prepared to hear God's word. Come prepared. Use the worship guide that's emailed to every church member through the newsletter every Tuesday. We have that access. We know what songs we're singing. We know what scriptures are going to be read, what the sermon passage is. So use that. Use that to prepare yourself to worship God. Study those passages. Have questions in your mind. What does this mean? But use it to prepare. This is how we become better listeners. Faithful, expositional preaching will produce obedient, expositional listeners when we come to the Sunday gathering with anticipation because we've taken time during the week to prepare. Fifthly, how can we progress in our sanctification? Be committed to discipling relationships. Be a disciple maker. The command of Christ in the Great Commission is to make disciples, and it's fulfilled through the local church. Pastor Blake, in his year in review and forward look into the new year video, recently encouraged us to be active in seeking discipling relationships. And the scripture's telling us grow in sanctification. And one of the ways we do that is through discipling relationships. Pray about who you could approach about starting a small group for discipling. It could be one-on-one -on -one or it could be one-on-two, three or four. But pray this, that every member of CCBC will be in consistent discipling relationships. I do pray that you'll consider and faithfully do each of these as joyful, devoted slaves of righteousness. Well, this brings us to point number four. The fruit produced from obedience to the two slave masters. We find this in verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, Paul is basically describing two paths that our lives can take depending on which slave master has dominion over us. So I'd like to make the stage maybe kind of a visual representation of these two paths. To my left is the path of the dominion that is under sin. The slave master is sin. To my right, the path of life. It's under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness is the slave master. Jesus even said, this path, this path that leads, that is under sin, is broad. Many are on it. This path is narrow. Many, few will find this. Who is on this path of Slavery to sin. It's all sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Anyone not in Christ by faith is on this path. And it's broad. And what is occurring along this path? In verse 21, it's described as things that Christians look back on and are now ashamed of. It's the shameful, sinful acts of impurity and lawlessness mentioned in verse 19. Galatians chapter 5 tells us more explicitly what these things are. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, the path of slavery to sin progresses in the desire for sin. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Oh, sin seems right. The works of sin momentarily satisfies the sinful desires of the unregenerate heart. But this slave master always demands more. What is the fruit produced from living on this path under the slave master of sin? The last part of verse 21 says, For the end of those things is death. Verse 23 For the wages of sin is death. So this death spoken of is spiritual death. Separation of God from God forever. All the works of unrighteousness earn a payment, a wage of eternal separation from God. All of us are created in the image of God. And as God is eternal spirit, so therefore the spirit of a person will live forever. So this death is actually an eternal life spent in unending torment in the darkness of hell, forever separated from God. It is the righteous judgment of holy God. It's the just reward for obedience to this slave master of sin. The only escape for this judgment is through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So to my non-Christian friend here today, what you are hearing about God and judgment and sin, if that makes sense to you, that's the work of God in your heart. The response to that is to repent and put your faith in Christ Jesus. Repentance is turning from this path of sin, turning away from it, and turning toward the path that leads to eternal life in the presence of God. And the first step on that path of life is by faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord. He becomes your new master. He is the fulfillment of the righteous requirement of God's law. Jesus, by his perfect obedience to the Father, left the glory of heaven, took on flesh, being born in the most humble and miraculous way through the virgin birth, lived a perfect, sinless life, willingly gave up his life through the cruel, bloody death on a cross, was buried three days, and then he rose again, victorious, having conquered death and sin. This he did for you in all who by faith put their trust in Christ alone because of God's grace alone. Well, let's examine the path that leads to sanctification and eternal life. This path begins by faith in Christ Jesus as Lord. That's justification. God declares you righteous by what Christ has done. So what is occurring along this path? It's sanctification. It's what we talked about earlier. It's becoming, in increasing measure, by the pattern of our lives, what we already are in Christ Jesus. We've been declared righteous. Now it's becoming living that out. The evidence is the good works of righteousness of the devoted slaves of righteousness. It's all because Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That was the end of Titus 2.14. What is the fruit that's produced on those works of righteousness? It's eternal life in the presence of God. It ends in the presence of God. And in contrast to the path of sin that leads to death, this eternal life is a free gift. There's absolutely nothing we can do to earn it. He saved us not because of works done, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So Christian, let your heart rejoice in the eternal life to come. Listen to this beautiful description from Revelation 21 of our new dwelling place with God. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Brothers and sisters, be renewed in your minds and strengthened in your hearts by the glorious truth that sin no longer has dominion over you because of the grace of God that has freed us from the tyranny of sin through faith alone in Christ alone. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Will you be faithful to Him by being a devoted slave of righteousness? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise You. We praise You for Your grace. It is by Your grace that we are saved from Your justified wrath through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you give it to us as a gift. You give us the faith to believe that. So, Father, we thank you for this truth. We pray, Father, that we will be obedient slaves of righteousness, that we will do the works for which you created us, to bring glory and honor to you, to become what we already are in Christ Jesus, righteous, but make us a people that are joyous and obedient and devoted slaves of righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.